0: I think it's important when talking and thinking about Eric's case to back up a little bit and talk about some of the things that happened prior to his arrest. Um, so to that end, I'm going to talk first about Jeffrey Lewis, and he was arrested in 2001 in Eugene, Oregon for burning three SUVs and um, I think the most alarming thing about his case was that he was sentenced to 22 years and eight months in prison. Um, His sentence was clearly politically motivated, Um, it was no secret that his actions were moved by a deep concern for the environment and the growing threat of global warming and despite the fact that his actions caused only $40,000 worth of damage and the cars were later resold and despite the fact that nobody was harmed during the actions which was not an accident Jeff received a sentence much longer than many folks who are convicted of things like rape and murder. It was clearly meant to send a chill throughout the activist community, which is exactly what it did. Um, Jeff appealed his sentencing and about seven years later, in February of this year, his appeal was successful. His sentence has been reduced to ten years, which means that he could be released as early as 2009. Jeff's case was not the first aggressive prosecution of environmental activists, and it certainly wouldn't be the last, but it did signal the change of direction for things to come. It was only four months prior to 9-11 and obviously that caused a drastic change in the political environment in this country and caused a pretty horrifying curtailment of civil liberties and dissent. The next case I want to talk about is SHAC, which stands for Stop Hunting to Animal Cruelty. On May 26, 2004, seven people in the organization called SHAC USA were indicted by a federal grand jury of Federal Animal Enterprise Protection Act. Um, I'm sorry, of animal enterprise terrorism under the federal Animal Enterprise Protection Act. Um, In 2006, all six of these folks were convicted of conspiracy to violate that act. It basically punishes anybody who physically disrupts an animal enterprise. Obviously, that's a pretty broad definition and could be applied to just about any sort of protest that people engage in. Um, the shack folks are alleged to have operated a website that reported on and expressed ideological support for protest activity against Huntington Life Sciences and its business affiliates. Some of them were charged with conspiracy to harass using a telecommunications device, and others were charged with conspiracy to commit interstate stalking. While all of those charges may sound sort of alarming, none of these folks were actually charged with having carried out any sort of direct action. The government's case centered around the idea that above ground organizers of a campaign should be held responsible for any and all acts that anybody else engages in while furthering the legal goals of the organizers. So basically these folks were charged with um, running a website and they all received sentences ranging anywhere from one to six years in prison. Um, Operation Backfire um, started on December 7, 2005 when federal and local law enforcement began the largest roundup of alleged environmental and animal rights activists in this country's history. The FBI, FBI called their operation, Operation Backfire, and it soon grew into a devastating series of subpoenas, arrests, and indictments, and this is where the term green scare started being used. All of the alleged acts were targeted sabotage against real environmental criminals, logging companies, labs working on GMOs, energy facilities, environmentally destructive developments, etc. And none of these acts of sabotage caused harm or injury to any animal or human life. Again that was not an accident. Despite this, the Attorney General at the time, General Gonzales, held a press conference on January 20th, and the Department of Justice issued a press release, both of which stated that the defendants were terrorists and indicating that they posed grave risk to human life. While none of the defendants were charged with the actual crime of terrorism, the feds continued to use it in their PR against them. These statements basically made crimes against property the ultimate evil which allowed law enforcement to continue to gain vast resources from federal coffers that was intended to fight terrorism but instead was used to harass and intimidate activists. Ironically on the same day that these folks were indicted Michael Fortier who was convicted for his part in the Oklahoma City bombing which did kill 168 people um, was released from jail after serving only 10 years in prison. In contrast, the government was threatening all of these folks who harmed no one with sentences ranging anywhere from 30 years to life plus 335 years in prison. And just for a little more comparison, in the federal system, arson usually carries about seven years, murder 16, sex abuse 7.3, and manslaughter 3.7. Again all of these folks were basically being threatened with life in prison. If the acts had not been political in nature, they would have been facing anywhere from five to ten years in prison. The government also sought the terrorism enhancement for all of these defendants, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. And then of course we'll talk about Eric's case later, but he ended up receiving almost twenty years. So basically by dangling the threat of ridiculously draconian sentences over their heads, the Justice Department intimidated and coerced many of these folks into cooperating against their former friends. Um, Only five of the defendants maintained their integrity and refused to cooperate with the government. Daniel McGowan, Joanna Zacher, Nathan Block, and Jonathan Paul all pled guilty to the charges against themselves, but refused to cooperate against other people. And on December 22nd, one of the folks swept up in Operation Backfire, Bill Rogers, was found in his cell after an apparent suicide. He left a note which read, To my friends and supporters to help them make sense of all these events that have happened so quickly, Certain human cultures have been waging war against the earth for millennia. I chose to fight on the side of the bears, mountain lions, skunks, bats, saguaros, cliff rows, and all things wild. I am just the most recent casualty in that war, but tonight I have made a jailbreak. I am returning home to the earth, to the place of my origins. Bill's death was a reminder of just how much is at stake. Um, So the people swept up in Operation Backfire, the sentences that they actually ended up getting ranged only from 3 to 13 years. Obviously there was a huge difference in what the government was threatening these folks with and what they actually got. In my mind that's a pretty clear reflection of the government's successful attempts at intimidation. Um, If the defendants had stuck together and not cooperated against each other the outcome of these cases might have been much different especially since the government's case rested almost solely on the word of an informant whose name was Jacob Ferguson but we will talk about that a little bit later. The last case I want to talk about really briefly is Rod Coronado. In February of 2006 he was charged with distribution of information relating to explosives, destructive devices and weapons of mass destruction. The charge stemmed from a talk that he had given in 2003 in which he answered a question from somebody in the audience about how he had made an incendiary device that he had used in a previous action which he had already spent time in prison for. Um, his lawyer argued that the statute under which he was being charged violated his first and fifth amendment rights the judge denied the motion and basically left it up to the jury to decide whether or not the statute was unconstitutional as applied to rod the jury was unable to reach a verdict regarding rod's guilt one way or the other and declared themselves deadlocked unfortunately the government was not done and at that point they began threatening to charge rod with the same thing for a different speech that he had also given in two thousand three those charges could have carried a sentence ranging anywhere from five to ten years and understandably exhausted by years of legal battles with the government and ready to move on to life with his family, Rod accepted a plea bargain, and in December of '06, he received a sentence of 12 months. I don't know if you guys can see those. Um, The charges against Rod and the Shack Kids I think are particularly disconcerting and that none of those allegations claim that the folks were actually involved in carrying out any sort of direct action. All of those charges dealt directly with things that I think most people would assume fall under free speech. The fact that the government was able to successfully litigate and prosecute those cases is pretty terrifying. Taken all together, the cases that we just really briefly talked about um, provide a glimpse of how aggressively the government is pursuing prosecutions of people involved in animal and environmental rights. By labeling them the number one terrorist threat, the FBI has created much more than a a war of words. It's a war that has devastating consequences for anybody who chooses to stand up. I think Eric's case ended up being something ultimately a little more disturbing and chilling both in the way the case was created and how it all ended. But before I launch into that, I just really quickly want to um, take a look at these quotes. And um, the first one, can you guys see them? Do you want me to read them? Um, so it says, the number one domestic terrorism threat is the eco-terrorism animal rights movement. That's from John Lewis, an FBI deputy assistant director and official in charge of domestic terrorism from August of 2005. And then the second one says, one of today's most serious domestic terrorism threats come from special interest extremist movements such as the Animal Liberation Front, the Earth Liberation Front, and Stop Hunting and Animal Cruelty. The FBI has developed a strong response to domestic terrorism threats. Together with our partners we are working to detect, disrupt, and dismantle the animal rights and environmental extremist movements that are involved in criminal activity. So the reason I wanted to show you the second quote in particular was because I wanted to compare it to this and this is from a 1967 FBI memo about what they're calling black nationalist hate groups and it says the purpose of this new counterintelligence endeavor is to expose, disrupt, misdirect, discredit or otherwise neutralize the activities of black nationalist hate type organizations and groupings, their leadership, spokesmen, membership and supporters. So this is obviously straight from the times of COINTELPRO although I hate to say from the times of COINTELPRO because clearly this sort of thing is still happening. They're using the exact same kind of language, the exact same kind of strategies and tactics against folks now that they were using in the 60s and 70s. Um, And in fact, for instance, this talks about targeting their leadership, and that's something that they're doing now too, specifically targeting above-ground organizers. So I just want people to sort of have that in the back of their mind as we think about um, what these cases and what they mean. So we're going to talk specifically about Eric's case for a while and Eric's case actually started in August of 2004 um, when he met a young woman named Anna at the Crime Crimethink convention in Des Moines, Iowa. She seemed energetic and knowledgeable and Eric took an interest in her that soon grew into something more than a friendship. Unfortunately, Anna was not who she seemed to be and as we know now, she was actually working as an undercover informant for the FBI. According to her testimony at trial, Anna was 17 at the time that she started working for the FBI. Um, according to her testimony, she was enrolled in a class at a community college in Miami and decided that she wanted to write an extra credit report for that class about the FTAA protests that were going on at the time. She went undercover, she called it, wrote the report, showed it to the class, and There was a cop in the class who thought it was great, he showed it to his superiors, they called Anna the next day, and soon after, she was working for the FBI in an official capacity, paid to infiltrate and spy on groups engaged in legal protest activity at things like Crime Think Gatherings, the GA, the DNC, the RNC, Feral Visions, etc. When Anna met Eric in Des Moines, she reported back to her handlers at the FBI that she thought he was harmless and not a person of interest. In fact, she testified at trial that the only thing, um, the only reason she was hanging out with him in the first place was that she thought he felt safe and non-threatening. Despite that, she continued to seek him out at various protests, going so far as to email other people inquiring as to his whereabouts. They continued to correspond, travel together, and attend many of the same events. During trial, it was made very clear that when Zach, Eric, Lauren, and Anna met at Eric's parents' house in November of 2005, it was only because Anna made that meeting happen. And the reason that's important is that the government used that meeting as sort of the beginning of the alleged conspiracy, and they talked about it over and over throughout trial. But... Um, when Mark, Eric's lawyer, said to Anna during trial, the FBI asked you to come to California to get these guys going on something, um, Anna affirmed that statement. She said that in November, the FBI became concerned that Eric hadn't made contact, so they formulated a plan to get the group to the West Coast where Eric was. That proved to be a rather difficult task because Lauren Meener absolutely did not want to come to the West Coast. She hated flying, and she and Anna had many arguments about it. Uh, Basically, what ended up happening was that Anna paid for her plane ticket to fly her out to the West Coast. When Eric expressed hesitation about the meeting, Anna called him selfish and basically pushed him into coming to the meeting as well. When she um, showed up in Sacramento, she met with the FBI. They told her what her role with the group was not supposed to be. She was not supposed to suggest, cajole, or push the others into doing anything, all of which she would do repeatedly throughout her time with the group. At the end of the meeting in November they still had no plan except to meet again sometime after Christmas which they did. Um, They met in a cabin in Dutch flat in January of 06. Anna drove Zach and Lauren all the way across the country from the east coast to the west coast in her own car. The cabin they lived in was one that she had found that the FBI was paying for. All of the supplies, food, gas, basically everything, the computers, everything they used to live and survive was paid for by Anna and the FBI. Um, The group would not have been on the same coast, let alone had a place to live without her. During trial, the burn book that the government referenced over and over again um, was full of so-called bomb recipes that were all written in Anna's handwriting. The tapes played during trial reveal a very pushy young woman who is constantly suggesting targets and pushing for more participation, um, creating plans, and pushing others into them. After about a week in the cabin, which must have proven incredibly difficult for Anna as somebody who was trying to make things happen, um, the FBI moved in and arrested Eric, Zach, and Lauren. The night before they were arrested, the group had a huge blowout. Um, Anna stormed out of the cabin claiming that she was upset because they couldn't reach agreement on anything, um, that they weren't moving fast enough, and she always had to adapt to their changing whims. Obviously, unbeknownst to the rest of the group, she left the cabin, met with the FBI. She said that she was tired and frustrated and that she couldn't do it anymore. And at that point, they told her that they would arrest everybody the next day, which is what they did. So this is from the criminal complaint and it basically just details Anna's involvement this particular piece details Anna's involvement in the group. It says that she has worked for the FBI since early 2004 um, that she has no criminal history. She received compensation for her work. It says that she has been used in at least 12 separate anarchist cases um, that she's been providing information about these folks in particular since July of 2005. Obviously that's a bit of a lie since we know that she has at the very least been providing information about Eric since 2004. Um, The sort of interesting thing about this is that we don't know if any of it's true because we weren't able to do any investigation of Anna. The government did not give Mark Anna's real name until about a week before trial which made doing any sort of investigation impossible. So we don't know if Anna has a criminal history or anything about her past. These are other pieces from the criminal complaint and I think the criminal complaint is actually a pretty revealing document. It's about 15 pages long and it uses the word anarchist, anarchism or anarchy about 25 times in those 15 pages. Um, It focuses not on any criminal history or nefarious criminal connections because there were none but instead it focuses on things like lifestyle and legal protest activity train hopping, hitchhiking, dumpster diving, and traveling are all discussed as if they were evidence of a criminal mind. It talks about crime think, it mentions evasion repeatedly, in days of war, nights of love. It specifies that Eric does not use a cellular telephone, which absurdly enough became a huge sticking point during the bail hearings. Um, It talks about Zach and Lauren's MySpace pages, which the FBI, used repeatedly during bail hearings and also Zach had recorded some of his dreams in his MySpace pages which they also tried to use his dreams against him at the bail hearings. Um, The criminal complaint made it very clear from the beginning that the case was not about a crime being committed but about the government's rabid pursuit of people who lead lifestyles that they find threatening or unacceptable, specifically in this case anarchists. Um, Anna was sent into their midst for a very clear reason, to fabricate a crime and draw them into it, setting up what the government could then use as an example for the rest of the community. So Eric was arrested with Zach and Lauren on January 13th, and he was immediately placed in what's called total separation, which is basically solitary confinement. Um, and he remained there for the duration of his time at Sac County Jail. It took about two years to bring his case to trial and another seven months for him to be sentenced. So that means that he was in TCEP for about two and a half years. Um, I don't know if I need to explain to everyone the emotional and physical implications that that carried for him and his loved ones. Um, It meant that he basically had no real human contact that entire time. He didn't have a cellmate. He was not supposed to leave his cell when other people were out. He rarely got to go outside. Although outside at Sac County really meant like seven floors up, with cement below you and you know a cage around you in open air. Um, it made visiting very difficult because he was um, because he wasn't supposed to be out with other people. So they had to block off the entire visitation space for us, which meant that we often scheduled visits in the morning and then would come back in the evening or the um, nighttime to visit him. I think perhaps the worst thing for us anyway was that two and a half years in Sac-, Sac County meant that we didn't have any contact visits that whole time. So every time that we saw him for those two and a half years, it was behind a wall of glass um, and over a telephone. Obviously, after the person you love has been ripped away from you by the state and is thrown in jail and then convicted and sentenced to 20 years, you're going through some pretty intense emotional times, and we had to do all of that from behind glass. Um, so that was that was not so much fun. Um, The first thing we had to really focus on after Eric was arrested was getting him bail. Eric and Zach were both denied bail from the very beginning. Lauren was actually granted bail fairly quickly after her family put up an inordinate amount of money, about $1.2 million in the form of a vaquero bond. Um, The difference between a normal bond and a vaquero bond is that with a normal bond, if you violate any of your terms of release, you don't lose the whole bond. That only happens if you jump bail. But with a vaquero bond, if you violate any of your conditions, you lose the whole bond. So, just to give people an idea of what that means, these are some of Lauren's conditions and So it says things like she shall not have contact with any person, group, association, or engage in environmental issues or advocacy. I didn't know Lauren, but my impression is that that would apply to just about everybody that she knew before her arrest, um, which means that if she had contact with any of those folks, um, she would automatically um, lose her bond. So it would be very easy for her to do that. But even with the amount of bail they put up, um, we were still a bit confused as to how Lauren got bail so quickly. Obviously that would all soon be revealed when we realized that she had been cooperating with the government for quite some time, um, since about a week after her arrest actually. It was clear that Zach did not receive bail because his family just didn't have the financial resources that the state was demanding for their ransom. But um, And obviously that was a pretty um, painful reminder of who suffers the most in the criminal justice system. But with Eric's situation it seemed markedly different. It seemed to have less to do with money and more to do with how the government was targeting him as an individual. He was the oldest of the three and um, had a much firmer sense of self and for lack of a better word integrity. I certainly don't claim to know what the government strategy was um, but they had to have known and other cases have played out all too similarly that if they could divide Eric and his co-defendants they would have a much better chance at successful convictions. Painting Eric as the ringleader certainly paved the way for that. Eric was actually denied bail twice. Um, the judge claimed that he was a flight risk and a danger to the community. Both were completely ridiculous statements. Eric had no criminal history and had been involved in no violent acts. His family was putting up their much loved home, which he would never have done anything to jeopardize. The judge's evidence, if you could call it that, to support his claims were that Eric knew how to live off the land and that he had no cell phone. The latter was clearly an indication in the judge's mind that Eric had no way to communicate with his family, which meant that he did not have strong family ties. Again I don't think I need to explain to you how ridiculous it is to say that just because somebody doesn't have a cell phone that they don't have strong family ties but that is what they claimed throughout the bail hearings. Um, This is just another piece of things that came out during the bail hearings that I thought was interesting. And this is specifically about prisoner support. And prisoner support was really amazing. And they were there from the very beginning helping Eric find a lawyer, um, doing fundraising for his legal defense, and really just helping his family through a lot of the emotional um, processes around this. But the government was actually targeting prisoner support pretty heavily at the beginning. And this was actually in one of the decisions about bail that came out. And it seems to be implying that if Eric got bail, prisoner support would whisk him away on some sort of like secret underground railroad. A Prisoner support, um, clearly that's ridiculous (laughs) and um, completely fabricated, but that seems to be what they were saying. Um, some other interesting things came out about prisoner support they had the emails that prisoner support was sending people um, about how to just support Eric like here's how you write him here's how you can fundraise for him and they also had transcripts from prisoner supports visits with Eric at the jail where they were just telling him what his rights were and you know that they would help him find a lawyer and all that kind of stuff so all of that came out in the discovery which was bizarre to say the least Eric's co-defendants were actually granted bail as soon as they agreed to cooperate with the government. This created a pretty ridiculous situation in which a person is considered a flight risk and a danger to the community as long as they maintain their innocence, but the second that they take a plea and admit guilt, whether or not they actually are guilty is another question entirely. Apparently, the risk of flight and danger to the community magically disappears. This is just another way that folks who stand up for themselves are... Uh, punished by the system. Eventually we had to let go of the idea of getting bail and settle into the fact that Eric would remain in custody pre-trial. Ultimately that meant that he was in jail for two years before he was ever convicted of any crime. And those were a very long two years. Um, After two months at Sac County, Eric tired of not getting any food that he could eat. Because he is vegan, he was basically pulling the food off the trays that was accessible to him. Um, Usually he ended up with things like a piece of frozen fruit, a piece of bread, um, sometimes some oatmeal. He could buy things like rice and beans from commissary, but obviously this was not an adequate diet. Um, He decided if the government was going to deny him bail while he was in jail pre-trial, the very least they could do was give him food he could eat. So in March of 06, he began a hunger strike, and the hunger strike lasted about two weeks. By the end of it he could barely make it up the stairs to come to visits. Um, During that time hundreds of people made phone calls to the jail demanding that he be given vegan food. It was almost comical listening to the responses um, from the jail as people called. Sometimes they said that Eric was already getting vegan food. Sometimes they said that he was doing fine. Sometimes they said he was talking to the jail commander right now. Sometimes they said he didn't want vegan food. Um, Obviously we knew the only way we were going to get an honest answer was if we talked to Eric himself. Um, he ended the hunger strike after two full weeks on March 22nd because his health had deteriorated to the extent that he was not able to have any sort of meaningful communication with his lawyer about his case or with his friends and family, um, all other options being exhausted, he filed suit against the jail in the court. On April 24th, the jail decided that they actually could give Eric vegan food, and they did so for over a year until about a week before his trial started, at which point in time they suddenly stopped giving him vegan food. Call us paranoid, but we could not shake the feeling that that was a little more than coincidental. Um, The jail denied that it was anything other than that, but um, we were a little curious about that. Obviously, hunger striking during trial was not really an option. He had to focus his energies elsewhere, but on November 9th, eight weeks after trial ended, Eric began a second hunger strike, which also lasted two weeks. Um, This hunger strike was complicated by the fact that he was experiencing a resurgence of his pericarditis. Pericarditis is a heart condition in which the sac around the heart swells. It feels a lot like a heart attack. It's very scary. Um, And Eric had never had this condition prior to being at Sac County Jail. The first time he experienced it was in April of 2007. And during that time, the jail was refusing to give him any real medical care. Um, They wouldn't even share his medical records with him, the only reason he went to the hospital was that he went to a hearing in federal court and the federal marshals saw how sick he was and they took him to the hospital, not the jail. Um, So during the second hunger strike he was experiencing pericarditis again, so now people were calling not only about vegan food but also about getting him medical care. Um, At one point so many people were calling, the jail had a note on their website asking people to stop calling about Eric McDavid. I told Eric about that at one of our visits, I thought it was great, and after I told him about it, they took it down, which was kind of sad, but um, eventually they decided that they could give Eric vegan dinners, never again did they start giving him breakfast or lunch, although they did tell him that they were going to change their food policy to provide vegan food for vegan prisoners in the future, Eric left Sac County um, before that happened, so I don't know if they've done that or not, it's something that we need to follow up on, um, this is a letter that he sent out to supporters after he ended the second hunger strike. So I think that there are a few things quite as scary as watching a loved one go through a hunger strike and medical conditions while in jail. But there are some things that I think are pretty close to... Um, the sort of emotional pain that one goes through. And one of the things that was really hard for us, and I I can't imagine what it was like for Eric, was when his co-defendants flipped and started cooperating with the government. Um, Basically what happened with Zach and Lauren was they pled to a lesser charge, which carried a five-year max instead of the 20-year max that Eric's charge carried, and they agreed to fully cooperate with the government. So that included not only testifying against Eric at trial, but also in any and all investigations that the government deemed them useful in. So that would include things like grand juries, future debriefings and interviews, trials, and other court proceedings. Um, I have no idea if they have done any of those things. These are just pieces of the plea agreement. This first one is just detailing The fact that the court is not a party to the plea agreement, which basically means the government can argue for a lesser sentence for somebody. So the government can argue that Zach and Lauren be sentenced to three instead of five, but the judge is the one who actually makes that decision. And so the government can argue whatever they want, but the judge could still sentence them to the full five if he wants to. Um, and this is just sort of the meaning of cooperation. So again, um they have to testify in front of grand juries, they have to um, you know do debriefings, answer subpoenas, et cetera and then at the very bottom it says consequences of failure to cooperate if the defendant commits any crime or if she fails to cooperate as defined in this agreement so if the government doesn't feel like they've lived up to this plea agreement um, the government is no longer bound by it so the government can throw it out and charge them with the original charge which again carries 20 years not five if they feel like they have not lived up to the agreement Um, When people plead guilty, they waive the following rights, uh, public and speedy trial, jury trial, presumption of innocence, unanimous verdict, confrontation of witnesses, compulsory process, privilege against self-incrimination, right to appeal, and representation of counsel. When you sit through a plea hearing, they actually go through every single one of these and make the person agree to give up the rights. It's a pretty scary thing to watch. And this last piece I just thought was interesting. It basically says that um, they've consulted with their attorney, they understand their rights and that no one has threatened or forced them into any way um, to enter into the plea agreement. Obviously this seems like a pretty ridiculous statement in light of the fact that they were originally being threatened with 20 years and now um, the max that they could get is five. So if that's not a threat or coercion I don't really know what is. Prior to trial Mark filed 28 pretrial motions. Oh, actually. I jump into that. Always forget that these exist. Um, Zach and Lauren's sentencing keeps getting pushed back. My impression is that the government will not sentence folks until they've testified at trial, which they have done. Um, And again, uh, my impression is that the reason for that is that if the government feels like they have not lived up to their plea agreement, they can throw it out and charge them with the full 20. Both of the dates at the bottom of this are now wrong because the sentencing has been pushed back again. Zach's sentencing I believe is now set for October 16th and Lawrence is set for October 10th. So prior to trial Mark filed 28 pretrial motions. Um, Some of those dealt with uh, problems with discovery which is just evidence that the government had not given them yet. Um, Some of it was about. violations of Eric's First and Fourth Amendment rights, various constitutional issues, and then a number of motions just decrying all of the government misconduct that happened at every stage of Eric's case. Uh, Twenty-one of those motions were heard on April 23rd in front of Judge England, who is the judge that also presided over Eric's trial, and he denied every single one of those 21 motions in less than two hours. After his ridiculous performance during the bail hearings, we all knew that we were in for an uphill battle, and this just sort of confirmed all of that. Um, A lot of grueling work goes into the pretrial period, and some of the most important decisions about a case are made during this time. Um, The judge assigned to your case has an inordinate amount of power and is the final arbiter of all of these decisions. Unfortunately, we were stuck with a judge who seemed to have some sort of vendetta against Eric and who had no qualms about making decisions that sort of flew in the face of common sense and legal precedent. Um, Obviously, that would prove to be pretty devastatingly decisive during trial. Eric's case finally went to trial in September of 2007. The government actually filed motions right before trial trying to keep Eric from using um, the entrapment defense. Had they been successful in this it would have destroyed the almost two years of work that Eric and his lawyer put into building his case. It was and is clear to anybody who looks at the case that Eric was a victim of government repression and his case has entrapment written all over it. This last ditch effort by the government was a pretty clear attempt to deny any wrongdoing and to basically expedite Eric's conviction. But even the judge, who, like I just said, ruled repeatedly against Eric, had to admit that there was, as he said, slight evidence of entrapment, and he did allow Eric to use the defense of his choosing. This is from the motion that the government filed. I think it's kind of funny. It says, McDavid attempts to discredit Anna and smear the FBI by making unsubstantiated claims and wild accusations. Um, I'm going to show you some clips from some media that came out after trial in a few minutes, and basically... Eric didn't need to smear the FBI or Anna, Um, all you have to do is listen to the tapes and sit through trial and they sort of did that for themselves and uh, the jury actually, uh, the quotes in the media that came out from the jury sort of backed that up. Um, So trial was pretty intense. (laughs) The government's main witness was Anna and she was on the stand for about two days spewing lies about Eric. Um, Most of them were pretty clear attempts to slander him in the eyes of the jury. None of this was really surprising to us. We seriously expected this sort of behavior from the government, but it was still incredibly maddening to sit and listen as somebody who was paid over $65,000 to destroy your loved one's life, told lie after lie about them on the stand. Um, This is just sort of an interesting exchange between Mark and Anna. He's saying things like, you know, you had to be, um, you had to participate in a lot of lies. And she says, correct. Often from when you wake up in the morning you start the lie to when you go to bed at night you keep the lie up, right? Correct. I mean, you know, all lies all the time would be the ad in the, in the phone book, right? When I was undercover in my role, yes. I understand. Now what specific training had they given you on how to lie? None. What classes did you take at community college on how to lie? None. etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Um, So, Basically, it was pretty clear that Anna was a paid liar and there was no reason why she would do anything different than that while she was on the stand. Um, I think though even worse than watching Anna on the stand was watching Eric's former co-defendants testify against them. Um, One of them whom I had known in a former life, or so it seemed, was a complete shell of his former self, a puppet to be manipulated and perform exactly as the government wanted him to. Um, I think probably the most terrifying thing about that was just sort of watching the raw power of the state at work, that they could so completely dismantle a human being as to make him completely unrecognizable to folks who knew him before was a pretty horrifying thing to witness and experience. Um, So we suffered through a few weeks of, of trial. It was on and off for a few weeks. And finally, the jury left for deliberations. Honestly, we couldn't help but feel a little bit hopeful. Um, Even the government's own witnesses' testimony contained a lot of really damning evidence of entrapment. And as the jury started coming back with questions, um, those hopes didn't really seem too far-fetched because they were asking really good questions, questions that indicated that they were giving the entrapment issue serious consideration and attention. Unfortunately, the court's responses to their questions were far from reasonable, albeit very predictable. Basically what happened was the judge completely redefined the term predisposition which is a key component of the entrapment defense to work in the government's favor. The government had to prove that Eric was predisposed to commit the crime before first contact with a government agent which obviously would be Anna. By telling the jury that Eric's first contact with Anna was in July of 2005, which was a full year after Eric originally met Anna, traveled with her, and maintained communication with her, this completely altered the jury's process as well as defying all previous legal precedent. Apparently first contact doesn't mean first contact or second contact or fourth contact or whatever. Basically the judge declared that first contact meant the first time that the defendant and the informant talk about the alleged crime. Obviously, in a conspiracy case, once somebody is talking about the alleged crime, they've surpassed predisposition. It renders the term completely meaningless. For example, this would be like saying that predisposition in an arson case starts when the fire is lit. Um, It also attempts to completely erase the year that Anna was building a relationship with Eric. So once this happened we knew that things probably weren't going to go so well. The jury came back in and none of them would look at Eric, a number of them had clearly been crying. A number of them continued to cry as they left the room and um, obviously they convicted Eric. We found out later that Mark and the news media had talked to a number of the jurors after the verdict was issued. What they had to say was both validating and um, maddening at the same time because it seems like many of them wanted to actually acquit Eric but thought that they were unable to because of what the judge had told them. Um, So these are quotes from the Sacramento Bee. The first one is just sort of um, backing up what I just said which is basically that they Um, had the instructions allowed them to place the relevant time period from August 2004 forward they would have acquitted him and then the second two are specifically about Anna they said that she wasn't credible that she was biased um, that she was pushy and that the FBI was an embarrassment Um, so clearly the jurors had a few contradictions going on these are statements drawn from juror affidavits which were filed prior to sentencing Um, they said that They said that the FBI was an embarrassment and Anna was not a credible witness, that there was a strong case of entrapment if they had been allowed to find Eric guilty of the lesser included offense they would have. And basically what that means is um, Mark argued very hard to get the judge to include this, and it would have allowed the jury to find Eric guilty of the same thing that Zach and Lauren were found guilty of. And so he would have been facing five years instead of 20. Um, The jury would have been into that, but the judge would not even let them consider that. They said that Eric did not agree with Sack or Lauren to destroy government property. Um, A conspiracy by definition cannot be between an informant and the defendant, so clearly that would have made their case moot. Um, They said Eric was not the leader, but Anna was. They said the FBI was out of control. They were confused about the judge's responses to their queries, etc. Obviously, none of this could change the fact that Eric was convicted. Um, I think in some ways knowing how close we had come made it even more painful and ridiculous. Um, after, um, after trial and the conviction, we had to wait for sentencing. It was originally scheduled for December, and two and a half months seemed like a really long time. We just wanted to know what sort of there was facing, and we also were pretty anxious for him to get out of sac County because his living conditions there were pretty horrible. Unfortunately, two and a half months turned into seven, and Eric was finally sentenced in May of 2008, two and a half years after he was arrested. The government was asking for the full 20 years. Probation was only recommending 13. Um, Again, in a very predictable move, the judge sided with the government and gave Eric basically the full 20 years. Please keep in mind... The nature of the alleged crime here. Eric is not accused of having carried out any sort of direct action. He is basically accused of not doing anything more than talking or conspiring. This is the longest sentence we know of for any environmental prisoner in this country. Even folks who have pled guilty to multiple arsons spanning many years um, have sentences ranging from 3 to 13 years. Eric's prosecution, conviction, and sentence were all used to set a very clear example of what happens to folks who dare to even think about challenging the state, and they set a pretty frightening precedent for things to come. Part of the reason that Eric received such a long sentence was because the government successfully applied the terrorism enhancement, which can be applied if the alleged offense is calculated to influence or affect the conduct of the government by intimidation or coercion, or to retaliate against government conduct. Again please keep in mind how broad these definitions are this could be applied to just about any sort of protest activity after all um, what is protest activity about if not to influence or affect conduct of the government. Um, And just a side note real quick here I don't know how much folks have been following what happened at the RNC a few weeks ago but people are being charged with very similar things eight people in particular are being charged with conspiracy to riot and furtherance of terrorism. Um, this is from my understanding based on a Minnesota law that's sort of like the Minnesota version of the Patriot Act and it's very similar to what happened to the Shack folks in that they're not being charged with carrying out any sort of direct action um, they're being charged with conspiracy. Um, basically they're being charged with planning some protests. So unfortunately I think that this is the kind of thing that we're going to see more and more often. These conspiracy charges are very easy to level at people and because of the increased use of informants which we saw at the RNC. This year Um, again I think this is just going to be happening more and more frequently. The way that the enhancement worked with ERIC um, as far as federal sentencing guidelines if you have the terrorism enhancement applied it automatically kicks your criminal history category up to a six which really affects the sentencing guidelines. Um, It does that even if you have no criminal history whatsoever which was the case for ERIC. Obviously it doesn't just do that it works great for the feds because then they can use it in their PR and say that they are successfully prosecuting cases of domestic terrorism and unfortunately it follows a person throughout their experience within the BOP. Once somebody has this label applied to them, they endure all sorts of craziness within the prison system. They have their phone calls restricted. Sometimes they have their visits restricted. Um, Some folks have their email taken away. They've had folks sent to these communications management units where they only get four hours of visitation a month, again through a wall of glass. And so obviously it's a pretty horrible thing to have to deal with um, throughout your sentence. And of course, um, having this label applied to you probably could follow you throughout the rest of your life as well, making it very difficult to do things like find jobs, find a place to live, etc. Uh, just another side note, this was from Eric's pre-sentencing report, which is what probation puts out about what a person should do upon their release from prison. And so it says, the mental health treatment condition is recommended to determine the source of the defendants' anti-government beliefs. Um, clearly this is not about any sort of mental health treatment for Eric he doesn't need mental health treatment um, but also it seems like a really ridiculous question to ask of somebody who they just entrapped um, threw in prison and then sentenced to 20 years and now they want to know why he has anti-government beliefs um, It seems like sort of a ridiculous question in my mind um, We were pretty worried after Eric was sentenced to 20 years and after the enhancement was applied that he would be sent to a high security facility. We were very relieved when that didn't happen and he got sent to Victorville, which is a medium security facility here in Southern California, it's about an hour and a half east of LA. Um, Other vegan prisoners have not had trouble getting vegan food there and that has been the case for Eric as well. Um, He has filed for appeals. Unfortunately, appeals can take many, many years, and so obviously, in the meantime, he will be in a federal facility. So you can write Eric. He loves to get letters. Um, You can also send money to his commissary account, and that's actually really helpful for him. It's how he pays for um, extra vegan food and stamps and phone calls to his friends and family. Um, So that's really great. He also has a book list up on his website which is supporteric.org. There's lots of information on the website. Actually the entire cross-examination of Anna, which there was just that small piece of earlier, is up on his website. It's like 240 pages. It's pretty interesting if you're interested. Um, A lot of the motions are on there and hopefully we're going to have more transcripts from trial up soon too. Um, and we're also doing fundraising we're going to be doing heavy fundraising soon because we're going to try to raise money to hire an investigator to actually get investigation of Anna done properly this time so if you're interested in helping with that let us know Um, I'm going to move on and talk about entrapment conspiracy charges and infiltration does anybody need to like stand up or go pee or anything because if you do I'm down with taking a couple minutes are we good keep going okay I'm going to take a sip of water (laughs) So I want to talk tonight about these things um, because unfortunately I think they're becoming more and more of an issue for anybody who is involved in any sort of dissent um, and folks who assume that they are not um, in danger of this I think are deluding themselves because even very tame local anti-war groups have been targets of infiltration these last few years so nobody should assume that, um, that this does not mean them. And perhaps I should also back up and say that while this has certainly become more of an issue for people involved in animal and environmental rights activism the last few years, um, this has long been an issue for folks engaged in things like AIM, the Black Panthers, um, Puerto Rican resistance, etc. Those folks have been dealing with this sort of repression for far too long and they have a very long history of, um, of acting in solidarity with each other. And I think that we would do very well to read that history and learn from it. Take good notes. Unfortunately, we don't have time to talk about that tonight. Um, So I'm going to talk really briefly about these things. And I want to start with entrapment. Oh, again, not a lawyer, not legal advice. It may seem like that. Um, So what is entrapment? Case law is actually pretty varied and open to vast interpretations on most subjects that come up in any courtroom. But basically what it comes down to is what the judge tells the jury they must consider when looking at the evidence in any particular case. For Eric, the jury was given these instructions about entrapment. The government has the burden of proving that the defendant was not entrapped, the government must prove that the defendant was predisposed to commit the crime before being contacted by government agents, which we've already talked about a little bit. The defendant was not induced by government agents to commit the crime and where a person independent of government contact is predisposed to commit the crime, it is not entrapment if the government agents provide an opportunity to commit the crime. So what, what does that mean? I don't want to get too lost in semantics but unfortunately definitions are important in the courtroom. So predisposition is um, just whether or not a defendant would have been inclined to commit the crime even without government involvement. Basically their willingness or readiness and inducement is government conduct that creates a substantial risk that an otherwise law abiding citizen will commit an offense. So according to the government in Eric's case this meant things like um, fraudulent representations, threats, coercive tactics, promises of reward, pleas based on need, sympathy, or friendship. So this all seems sort of straightforward, Um, unfortunately in a courtroom situation it gets incredibly tricky because both sides are trying to offer proof of something that can be incredibly hard to prove and that is a person's intent, their will, or their personality. The old saying actions speak louder than words are actually quite applicable here because people can talk for days and days about things that they may or may not do but until they actually do them who's to say whether or not they are predisposed coupled with the fact that part of being human is possessing the power of choice and free will that we can change our hearts and mind at any time and often don't do so until smacked in the face with the most difficult of decisions proving that somebody is or is not predisposed seems like a pretty impossible task. Perhaps that's why they created the overt act and to talk about that we need to talk briefly about what conspiracy charges mean. I think conspiracy charges are particularly alarming and that Basically no crime is ever committed here. People are virtually charged with thinking or talking about engaging in acts that the state has defined as illegal. To prove conspiracy the government has to establish three different things. Again these are coming from the jury instructions at Eric's trial which was a federal trial. These are probably very different state to state. Um, They had to prove that there was an agreement between the defendant and at least one other person to commit the crime. Um, Remember the informant cannot be the one other person. The defendant became a member of the conspiracy knowing of at least one of its objects and one of the members performed at least one overt act. The overt act does not have to be illegal and the defendant does not have to be the one to commit it. So what you might be asking is an overt act. Um, According to the prosecution during Eric's trial um, in closing arguments they said um, the mere fact of coming together at the cabin was an overt act. He went on to say that searching for sites about chemicals on the internet was an overt act, and that when they hit the start button on the computer, that was an overt act. Um, he said that the conspiracy train has already left, and that these defendants were guilty the moment Lauren Wiener bought the poor man's James Bond, which is a book. So there you have it, buying books, surfing the internet, moving into a house with some friends, even switching on your computer. All of these things could be considered overt acts. Virtually anything a person does in their day to day life could be construed as evidence of criminal activity. This is just one example I think of how the government holds all of the cards in these situations. Making and breaking the rules of the game. at at will with complete immunity and if the law doesn't seem to be working for them they just rework it or redefine it to fit their needs. Again remember by Anna's own testimony Eric was not predisposed when he met her in August of 2004. She said that she thought he was safe, that he was harmless and he was not a person of interest. Based on transcripts from discovery when Anna asked Eric what had radicalized him and she said um, the only specific thing that he told her was his relationship with her. To get around this little snafu, the government obviously just had the judge redefine the term predisposition. And as far as inducement, Anna was absolutely inducing the other three throughout her time with them. She pushed, cajoled, hinted at future romance, um, gave them a place to live through fits when they weren't moving fast enough. Um, Yet the government still maintained that Eric was not induced. And their responses to Mark's accusations, they simply claimed that... um, and his behavior was justified by citing a ridiculously long list of cases in which other informants had engaged in outrageous behavior and gotten away with it. The bottom line is the government is quite skilled at bending and manipulating the law to make it work for them. Don't ever think that the law will protect you. That is absolutely not what it was designed to do. And to operate under that assumption is folly of the worst kind. So I'd like to shift gears a little bit and talk about government informants. There actually are guidelines laid out by the Attorney General's office detailing how government informants are supposed to conduct themselves but scant evidence exists that government agencies actually follow these guidelines, share them with informants or are even aware of what the guidelines are. In 2005 a report was released that showed in an analysis of 120 informant files the justice department's inspector general found that FBI agents violated procedures in 87% of the cases including some in which informants allegedly engaged in illegal activity without proper oversight or permission. During trial, Anna actually testified that um, she had a telephone conference in Philly with the FBI about those guidelines in November of 2005. She said that she had never had a hard copy of the document in front of her, but that it was summarized during that phone call. During his testimony, her handler, Agent Ricardo Torres testified that the last time he had reviewed the guidelines was at 1245 that afternoon when the FBI had faxed them over to the prosecutor's office for him to read prior to his testimony as her handler Torres was responsible for Anna and for making sure that she did not violate the guidelines Um, unfortunately he himself didn't seem to know what they were when asked if Anna was allowed to solicit people to come to political protests he said he didn't know When asked if an informant can't do anything that an agent can't do he said that he couldn't recall. When asked if an informant sorry a confidential informant could do things an FBI agent can or can't do Torres responded I don't know. So obviously the person in charge of telling Anna what she was supposed to do or could do or couldn't do didn't himself know what those things were. And this is of course assuming that the informant is under the supervision of a government agency because there are different kinds of informants. Anna was hired and paid by the government. Her original designation was C.S. or C.I. which is cooperating source or confidential informant. Um, Once she received O.I.A. or otherwise illegal activity status in 2005, Um, Her status changed to CW, or Cooperating Witness. At that point, the FBI could begin recording, legally, her conversations with other folks. So she wore a body wire at all times, her car was wired, and she might have also had a wire in her bag. Um, Her phone conversations with the others were recorded, and when they moved into the cabin at Dutch Flat, it was wired with audio and video surveillance. All of the equipment running the surveillance was located in the garage of the house they were in, Um, Anna said that it was locked because the government I'm sorry the, um, the landlord kept his things there and so nobody else ever thought to look in the garage. Not all informants are hired and paid by the government a lesson that we have been painfully taught over and over again these last few years. Perhaps the most infamous of informants is Jacob Ferguson. He was involved in over a dozen cases of arson mostly in the Pacific Northwest over a period of many years. The FBI originally approached him in 2001 with a subpoena for a grand jury and instead of testifying um, he agreed to talk with them and told him them that he had nothing to do with it. They approached him again in 2003 and he agreed to fully cooperate some say in exchange for large sums of money but most definitely in exchange for drastically reduced sentencing. In the spring of 04 he traveled around the country visiting former friends reminiscing about old times baiting other people to incriminate themselves, all the while wearing a wire. These conversations and the word of Ferguson form the basis of the government's case in the Operation Backfire cases that we talked about earlier. All of those folks are now serving anywhere from 3 to 13 years in prison, all of them except, of course, for Jacob Ferguson, who, in exchange for his great efforts, received absolutely no time in jail or prison. And unfortunately this was not the last time that folks would cave under government pressure and deliver their former friends into the hands of the state. In March of 2008, four people were arrested in the Midwest on ELF related charges. It was soon discovered that one of the four had been cooperating with the FBI since April of 2007. He had been doing things strikingly similar to what Jacob Ferguson had been doing, traveling to Earth First gatherings, apparently flying other people there, wearing a wire, recording conversations and phone calls basically doing his best to save his own ass and land other people in jail. And then in July this year three more folks were arrested for an action which took place eight years ago in Wisconsin apparently as the result of another informant named Ian Wallace. I think with cases like Ferguson and Ambrose it's a different kind of complicated because these are people that folks have already carried out actions with which unfortunately um, gives them a false sense of security when speaking with them about the past. And then, of course, there are people like Zach and Lauren, um, Eric's co-defendants who cave under government pressure and agree to cooperate, inevitably in exchange for a lighter sentence. Um, we won't go through all of this again, because I know I talked about it quite a bit earlier. But again, they plead to a lesser charge, they give up their rights, and they cooperate, um, which includes testifying against the person at trial. So, I realize this paints sort of a grim picture. (laughs) My intent is not to scare people. That's not what I want to do. I just want people to know um, that these things are happening, and I also want them to know how these folks operate so they can sort of be on the lookout for it in the future. Um, according to the affidavit in eric's case anna was actually involved in the prosecution of twelve separate anarchist cases so it's pretty clear that she was used by the feds for this specific purpose to infiltrate the anarchist movement and to deliver to them successful prosecutions which they could then use as an example for other people Um, A lot of people have wondered if there were warning signs that could have been used to indicate who Anna actually was or what her intentions were. Obviously there are no hard and fast rules here and it's tricky because if we live in fear of each other and of our community then we've already lost. So I don't want anybody to take the things I'm about to say or show you as clear-cut signs of infiltrations, but just specific examples of how the informant in this case operated. Um, This is Anna posing for Elle magazine. The interesting thing about that is that during trial the government went to very great lengths to keep her identity a secret. They would not let her say her real name on the stand. They would not let the courtroom artist paint her face. They freaked out when they thought somebody was trying to take a picture of her with their cell phone. Um, And then a few months later Anna appears in an internationally distributed magazine. So clearly Anna herself was not too terribly concerned at the very least about people knowing what she looked like. Um, when she first started appearing at gatherings and protests, Anna posed as a medic. She carried a medic bag, she wore the medic garb, but according to people who actually interacted with her, once anybody actually needed medical attention, she was sort of quick to disappear from the scene. These are emails from and to Anna from other activists. Um, the, I think the one that's most interesting is this one on the top right. It says she's talking about a protest that she's going to. And she says, brutal, it'll be a reunion. Do you guys need anything? Supplies, paint, chains, nails, pipe, anything. Tarn feathers, like I said, disposable income. So ask around all your contacts. It'd be safer to bring from outside as well. So what are we going to do with a smiley face at the end? Um, clearly here she is suggesting a few things, which she's not supposed to do. And I think the other interesting thing about this is that she talks about how she has disposable income. And I don't know how many of you know folks with disposable income, but I certainly don't. Um, And Anna actually did this a lot. In fact, Zach and Lauren both testified at trial that she would literally pull $100 bills out of her pocket and hand them to people to pay for things. And so um, it might be a good idea to question where people's disposable income is coming from. And the second, the two emails sort of on the bottom, I think I included just because it was clear that Er that Anna was targeting Eric. I mean, she was seeking him out, um, and the email on the bottom, she's asking somebody where D is, and D is Eric, and then this guy says, you know, sorry, I don't even know who that is. But clearly, um, it wasn't just by chance that Anna ended up with Eric. She was targeting him from the beginning.